That said, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm chapter 23, talking tonight about the shepherd king. Psalm 23, I'm going to read that, and then we will pray and get right to work. Psalm 23, verse 1. These are the words of God. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we have gathered here as a thankful and a grateful people. We have sins to confess, joy to cultivate, and responsibilities to attend to. Some of us are weary from this past week's battles. Others are burdened by infirmities. We pray that you, our rock and redeemer, would give us the grace and mercy necessary to walk in obedience to you. Help us as we look to your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our series in the Psalms, we have now come to the 23rd Psalm, which is no doubt the most well-known song in the entire Psalter. Most, it seems like most everybody is familiar, at least to some degree, with this psalm. If you've ever attended a funeral, you would be. Written by David, we find here a robust metaphorical glimpse into the covenant relationship that existed between Yahweh and Israel. There are plenty of references in the Hebrew Bible to this relationship that employ the shepherd-sheep relationship itself as a description of God and his people. For example, Psalm 79, 13 reads this, But as for us, as your people and the sheep of your pasture, we will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Psalm 95, verse 7 goes like this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Another example from another section of the, the uh, Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is Micah 7.14. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your inheritance, which dwells by itself in the forest in the midst of a fruitful orchard. Uh, one more from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 will suffice. Isaiah says, Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs, and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. I, I mentioned these passages in order to help you see that when Jesus himself picks up the same theme in the Gospels, he's not pulling it out of nowhere. Rather, Jesus himself uses the language of the Older Testament in order to explain what he's doing. All the parables, all the descriptions, all the actions of Jesus are always done to explain what he is what he's doing explain what the kingdom is like because he was of course bringing it and what we know he was doing is gathering his sheep while being established as the shepherd king so all first century jews without exception probably all first century jews knew the metaphor quite well 
And they knew it both conceptually because they understood the Hebrew Bible, but they also knew it literally because many of them were shepherds and they would have seen it happening uh, quite normally. Just like you see cars driving around, they would have quite naturally seen a lot of shepherds and sheep in the, in the fields. So more on that a little bit later, though. I'm going to tell you on the front end, the main point of the entire psalm is verse 4. God-centered living looks like being comforted with the presence of God through the valley of the shadow of death and his presence with us in spite of the presence of evil. So that's kind of the thrust of it. Uh, the, the table, we know, is prepared in the presence of the enemies. So the, the psalm itself is actually a battle of presence, not presence like you would get on Christmas. Presence, like who will be with you, whose presence will win out the day. Uh, the presence of Yahweh in, in the dark times or the presence of the enemies, who's going to win? And as a result of this, it is a battle regarding the faith that is required to know what matters most. So whose presence will win the day, and will your faith be able to delineate between those two things? Now, this is obviously a very difficult task for 21st century Christians who have essentially grown accustomed to farming out their safety and security to the statists. So that's a whole other topic, but that's a difficult thing to, to do when you have decided to let others do the governing for you. Now, in the psalm, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used as essentially a bookend or an inclusio in, in poetry, and that's for the entire, the entire psalm. Yahweh is right at the very beginning, the Lord, Yahweh's covenant name. Yahweh is at the start, and Yahweh is actually at the very end. If you look at the last verse, dwelling in the house of Yahweh forever. So first and the last, um, he's the start, he's at the end. I think that's partly what maybe St. Patrick was getting at when he had his famous prayer about Christ before me and Christ behind me, or Christ underneath, beneath me and Christ above me. So at the very middle is verse 4. That is highlighting the point of this chiastic work of art. A chiasm would be a poetry where you'd have A, B, C, C1, B1, A. It's kind of like a triangle, or excuse me, like a like a, a, an arrow, a pointer. Um, and that's how poetry would often work. You'd sort of start with a topic, add to it, get to your point, emphasize the point, go back and mirror the other points you made. That's called a chiasm in Hebrew, po Hebrew uh, poetry. Now, interestingly, David's poem is actually about one person and not the whole of Israel. It's a poem about one person. And it's true that God made a covenant with Israel as a whole, David certainly knew that as much as anyone. But the collective does not cast aside the individual. So in Christian theology, the, the one and the many, the collective, the individual, we, can only, we balance that because of the Trinity. Um, but our humanist overlords like the collective more than the individual. Now the story, though, is about God with one particular sheep. And you may recall Jesus, his parable about going after the one lost sheep. You remember that? An interesting look into the heart of God. This poem is about God with one sheep. It's about God with one particular dinner guest, highlighting the intimacy of knowing God deeply. There is sublime confidence in God's very deep and very near presence. And that's the point of the psalm. It's a song of trust. It is not a song of tranquility. 
and it is not a song of blissful ignorance. There is no pie-in-the-sky theology here. Uh, everything's fine, even though the world's burning. No, there's none of that. There's no name-it-and-claim-it theology here. <laughs> what we have here is a solemn analysis of the reality of living in God's world where enemies are actively being defeated by the advancement of the gospel. It's a song of trust in and through the pain and suffering. In and through the pain and suffering. This is not a blissful, willful ignorance, a naivety about how the world really works. You know, you suck it up, buttercup, because the world's tough. And it's nothing like that. And it's also not a song of escape where David looks for the nearest escape hatch and wants to get off planet Earth. I mentioned before, Psalm 23 is oftentimes, um, I've read it at funerals, uh, officiating funerals, I've, I've read it certainly several times, but it's often read at funerals, and, and rightfully so. Funerals, you may recall, perhaps your most recent one that you have attended, uh, funerals are times of great reflection and sober self-examination. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes it's essentially better to be at a funeral than at a birthday party. And there's a reason for that. Gathering together and reflecting on our loved ones, we can't help but also reflect on the fragility of life. We are confronted with our own mortality, staring death, that, that great enemy, right in the face because it hits home, because it's someone we loved and they have passed on. And, and, you, and you deal with those things in the midst of it. And perhaps one of the most difficult questions related to the funeral experience, at least that I've had to deal with, especially doing funerals for unbelievers, I've done plenty of those, is the problem of evil and the Christian answer to it. Now, atheist miscreants, they love to throw this at an unsuspecting Christian. That's one of the favorite, uh, favorite tactics. Oh, if God is real, wouldn't he cure everyone's diseases? Wouldn't he feed all the hungry children in Africa and... Wouldn't he fix Sri Lanka's current problem? You know, that, that's one of their favorite things to throw at you, is, is if your God is all this, wouldn't this be the case? And, and the question for us is, how should we answer that? I'm going to come back to that. I think Psalm 23 helps us understand it. So hang tight, we'll get there. The, the context of the psalm is debated. David may have written it during his son Absalom's rebellion, sort of bad child experience, um, scholars are definitely divided on it. However, most believe that he could have well just, just as well written it at the end of his life while he's kicking back, reflecting on everything he's gone through. But either way, there are two basic sections. I'm going to break it down more in a second, but there are two basic themes and sections here. Verses 1 through 4 is about the shepherd and his, and his lamb, and the rest of the chapter is about the shepherd and his king. And they, people argue over this. It's kind of funny, like, the metaphor shifts, but where does it shift, and how does it shift? And I'll explain some of that, but we're not going to get too far into it. I will say this, though. In some regard, this psalm is an autobiography. David wrote it. It's a psalm of David, as the text says there. Um, it's a God-exalting autobiography. David's, David's life, if you recall the life of David, he moved from being a... Uh, a shepherd tending sheep out in the pasture to being established as a king who wanted to build a house for the Lord. It seems like that's the trajectory of David's own life. 
He was a shepherd, Yahweh was his shepherd, and then he grew and matured, defeated Goliath. You know, Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and then all that jealousy was provoked and chaos unfolded in the kingdom, and then eventually David became king and wanted to build God's house. So that seems to be, seems to fit with the psalm itself. David's messianic kingship, it was put in place in stages, and he faced all sorts of opposition. He had opposition with Saul, who eventually, out of jealousy, wanted David dead. David uh, ends up, if you remember the story where he sees him in the cave, and he cuts part of his cloth, and he says, look, I could have killed you, but like God has put you as king. I'm not going to kill you, even though you're trying to kill me, and I'm on the run. David was a, of a man of, of humility in that regard. So uh, Saul was in opposition to David, even David's own sons. The house of Yahweh in which David will dwell forever, it may be the temple. That's the last verse there. But I, I think actually David was referring to the house that God would build a dynasty of his sons, of David's sons. But either way, Psalm 23, it's a beautiful poem. It's about the comforting presence of God despite the evil that may be crouching and pouncing seeking an opportunity to overcome us. So let's look at our passage here. Look at it as a whole, not in a specific text, but as a whole here. This is how you can break it up. Verses 1 through 3 are essentially a declaration of faith in God and obedience to His ways as the great shepherd. God's the shepherd, we're the sheep. Don't confuse those. Verse 4, that's the midpoint of the psalm. I already emphasized that. That's the centerpiece of the, of the poem where David asserts God's presence and guidance as being a great comfort to him during times of travail. And then verses 5 and 6 describe the rest of the metaphor, but it's, there's a slight shift, of course. Yahweh is the banquet host who sustains us in his own home. So the imagery shifts a bit. Look at verse one, 1, 2, and 3. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice that the covenant name of God is used first from the very beginning. Contrary to most modern Christian music, God is the focal point of the entire psalm. David writes in order to magnify the covenant-keeping God of glory. Like a dam that has burst, Everything spills out of this opening line. Yahweh is my shepherd. Emphasize any word you want. Yahweh is my shepherd. Um, Yahweh is my shepherd. Or Yahweh is my shepherd. Or Yahweh is my shepherd. Read it all that way. The first reality of this covenantal relationship is God's provision. David highlights God's provision. David does not suffer want. That is, he, he lacks nothing because with God, he has everything. God makes, note the, note the words here, makes, leads, restores, and guides his sheep. He does that. He, he makes them lie down in green pastures. He, he, he talks about quiet or still waters, offering up the restoration of the soul, guiding them to the paths of righteousness. So we have here a capable shepherd. He's good at his job. One whose name and character is in step with his profession. He has great uh, referrals. He's doing well on LinkedIn. People support his work as a shepherd. The metaphor begins with green pastures out in the world, but eventually it moves to God's house. Every verse expresses gratitude, 
trust and thanksgiving for all that God has done, for all that God has provided. So, I mean, look at all the things that God has provided for us. Food, drink, peace in the soul, clear travel. I mean, the shepherd is simply good. He's good at his job. Shepherds offer a tender care to the sheep and also another job description is unrelenting watchfulness. The sheep trust the shepherd's guidance and wisdom. He brings to them rest, uh, revivication. He's there to help them whenever they encounter danger. He's present. He is always on call, always ready to help in times of need, to provide for his sheep. Uh, The sheep, they completely rely on the shepherd's provision and protection. They can't defend themselves. I mean, they're sheep. They're one of the dumbest animals, correct? They just fall and hurt themselves. They, they rely on the provisions and protections of the shepherd. They, they surrender themselves wholly to his governorship and care. Which, by the way, the, the, this is the testimony of the sheep here. David's experienced this, but this is the testimony of the sheep. Um, grass, safety, secure water, well-defended paths. Everything the sheep needs to be a sheep. Yahweh the shepherd has provided To be revived is to experience restoration after some dangerous encounter. So if you look at that there in verse 3, he restores my soul. To be restored is to be revived. Some dangerous event, perhaps a wolf who came and uh, maybe ended up biting the leg of one of the sheep here. We we don't know. But the, the shepherd would, of course, nurse the wounds and get the sheep back to health. That's part of his job. That's the restoration. But here, this shepherd deals with the soul the innermost part of who you are. Good shepherds, they make sure that the sheep are taken care of. God always finds his sheep in a state of turmoil. That's what makes his grace so amazing. He he finds his sheep in a state of turmoil. That's the elect of God somewhere out there in a state of turmoil. Who among us was not in a state of turmoil when Christ saved us? See, there's also kind of a, I think David is thinking also of the Exodus event. There's a lot of overtones of that, but Yahweh's great care for Israel in the Exodus, being led out through the dry ground, through the Red Sea, being provided manna in the wilderness. He's a great shepherd, and he took them all the way to Mount Sinai where he gave them his gracious law as a way of ordering their culture so they can glorify God. And all of that was done so that eventually the nations would worship this great God as well to bring in the other sheep who are not a part of this fold, to use Jesus' language. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, That verse has a total of 15 Hebrew words, and the emphasis, the key phrase is, for you are with me. Me. The entire relationship hinges upon the faithfulness of the shepherd host and his sacrificial care. God's own nature is one of faithfulness. That's the Hebrew word chesed that's uh, used here later on. His faithfulness, his provision, his protection, God's nature is all those things. So because of that indicative, that truth, we are told to trust him. We can trust him. As travelers facing danger at any turn, God is truly with us. No evil, note that, 
I fear no evil. No evil can stand in the face of Yahweh our King. The valley was a place where death lurked around the corner in the shadows because of brigands and other robbers, potential people who would steal from you, who would uh, beat you and take your stuff, or perhaps in the metaphor here, larger wild predatory animals lurked in the corner, corner of the shadows. But despite this threat, God's rod and his staff offers up consolation. Side note here, because Augustine says something interesting about this passage. Augustine sees this graduation from the milk of the word, the rod and the staff, to the meat of the word, meaning the banquet, the dinner guest, which is an interesting take. He's probably right. But let's talk about the rod and the staff here. The rod, two instruments of the shepherd. The rod was used as a club, not to strike the sheep, but to keep wolves and other predatory animals away, to strike the wolves, to strike any sort of, of, of a bear, perhaps, or a lion, whatever. That's the rod. It, was, it would have been shorter, would have been more like a, like a club, perhaps not even as long as a baseball bat, maybe like three feet, if that. The staff, though, was, of course, one of the main instruments of the shepherd. The staff was curved slightly at the top. Um, ancient uh, archaeology shows that you see like the cartoons or the Bible stories, they're like perfectly shaped and sort of little Bo Peep-esque, you know. Not necessarily the case. A lot of, the, a lot of them were just curved enough at the top. It wasn't like a full curve, um, the end of it, but the, it was curved at the top to some degree, and that was done to keep sheep on the path as they're coming alongside. It was also used for a walking stick for the shepherd. Obviously, no doubt, the shepherd would have walked through treacherous paths. Perhaps during a rainstorm, it's slippery. He's trying to help, you know. It was a useful tool in that regard. Now, Proverbs picks up on this metaphor, by the way, likening the rod and the staff to the training of kids in righteousness. So seeing to it that they are under the instructive care of wisdom and the wisdom of God's law words. So to, to uh, train up your child in the way he should go is to provide direction, to provide guidance. It's a metaphor in the book of Proverbs. Look at verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness, that's that Hebrew word chesed, that's sometimes translated mercy. Loving kindness, I think, is a better translation. But that will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Yahweh is a shepherd. Interestingly enough, he's also a host, extending extraordinary hospitality to his sheep. You might even call him his sheep slave. He loves having dinner guests. Yahweh is great at preparing for those things. Remember, Jesus was criticized often for dining with sinners. Terrible, terrible practice. He loves having dinner guests. God is, even, even one guest for God is sufficient for going all in on the banquet, preparing the best of the best, anointed with oil on the head, having more than enough food and uh, wine and drink. God's rich care leads the guests to feelings of security, to feelings of blessing, to feelings of, of fellowship. The gustatory table feast follows the victory of David over the enemies of God. The anointing here, anointing the head with oil, 
is his establishment as king. Uh, that's what uh, the prophet Samuel did in looking for the next king. None of the sons of Jesse were there, were qualified. David's out. Go get him. He's anointed king. Having an overflowing cup is having a successful eschatological reign as God's anointed one. This messianic warrior king, that's who David was to be. He is victorious. And the reason David was victorious over Goliath, for example, and the Philistines and other situations, was because God had established him. God had established him. God had anointed him. He is God's Messiah, his anointed one. And obviously Jesus fulfills that. So God's leadership in salvation, his leadership in deliverance, his, his goodness, his mercy, loving kindness, all of it is constant, we're told in Psalm 23. It's constantly yours, church. It's constantly yours, and it's reliable. It's unfailing. He is an active shepherd and host. That word loving kindness, essentially, chesed, means his covenant faithfulness in his action, not just speaking, but acting for his people. He is an active shepherd and host. God's protection is highlighted throughout. The rod and the staff give comfort and assurance, striking the wolves and guiding the sheep. Um, God also leads us on paths and protects us on those paths, even in hostile contexts. Um, the third thing, God even uses oil for healing and restoration. Fourth way that God's protection is highlighted, God gives extravagant, luxurious blessing in the midst of tumult. Instead of being chased around by wild animals and predatory robbers, the man who trusts the Lord will be pursued and chased by goodness and loving kindness. Note that, that that word pursue, surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue Pursues the perfect, I think it's a great translation, but it's the idea of actively chasing after you. Not the enemies of God. Because we can look today at around the world and think the enemies of God are sort of chasing after us. No, you're not seeing with the eyes of Christ. To see with the eyes of Christ is to see the goodness and loving kindness of God chasing you. Their way behind. When God acts for his name's sake, David says, he is acting in his own best interest, which correspondingly is the best interest of each of us. When God acts for his name's sake, just know that it's for your, your sake too. His glory, your sake as well. And it's good. What God does is good. Everything he does is good. God's aim in redemption is to, by his grace, bring us into harmony with his will to restore the religious direction of our lives through the regenerative power of the holy spirit to be chased by goodness and loving kindness is to be pursued by the covenant god who is those things the sheep without want in verse one is the same man in verse six who sees yahweh as the ultimate source of all goodness all satisfaction all pleasure all protection. Psalm 73, 25. This is a great verse. It says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. When you have the right perspective, you know that when you have God, you have everything. God has rather efficaciously provided for every detail of his people because God is with us. 
let's consider a little bit how we might apply this text today. Jesus Christ is our capable shepherd. Jesus Christ is our capable shepherd. He is also our Lord Protector, a name given to Cromwell. He is our capable shepherd. He is our Lord Protector. When we have Christ, we have it all. Children, you might remember the parable of Jesus about the hidden treasure. The man buys the field. Why does he buy the field? Because there's buried treasure. That's the kingdom. To have it all. To have the kingdom is to have it all. To have it all in this life is to have the kingdom. In Christ, we have it all. We have his guiding hand, which is also, incidentally, the hand by which he wields his rod of iron. As the shepherd king, he graciously lays down his life for his friends. As the shepherd king of Ezekiel 34, Jesus brings us back from exile, out of the slavery of sin, restores his sheep, gives us a seat, at his table kingdom. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, when the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it. He does it. Which is to say the condition that man finds himself in, that ineradicable condition of sin, sickness, and disease, all of that is undone when Jesus stoops low in order to pick us up, hoist us up, throw us on his shoulders, defeat the wolves that had been ravaging us and carry us forward to safety. So how, how should we read this passage today? Especially when we consider now the gospel, the good news of Christ and his kingdom. How do we consider that with Jesus, our Messiah? Well, Jesus is the great shepherd. He says that much about himself. He is the great shepherd. In him, we have what we need for life and doctrine. There is no such thing as lack with this king. When you read, by the way, uh, verse 1, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. You could also say, Jesus is my king, I lack nothing. He provides serene pastures for us to graze in, a life to live in obedience to his commands. As the giver of living water, his spirit quiets our uproarious souls. We're reading this with New Testament, Newer Testament gospel eyes here. Through the Father's election, the Son's blood-bought redemption, and the Holy Spirit's heart-changing ministry, our, our souls are restored. Our souls are healed from the defamation of sin. With the law word of God written on our hearts, guess what? We can now walk upright. We can now tread on paths of righteousness. We would have otherwise not been able to do so. And all of that's for the name and the fame of King Jesus among the nations. And yet, this life that we live, because of that sin, is still in need of further redemption. Okay? So the hinterlands out there, they have still, there's enemies that are out there that are yet to be footstooled by Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, my favorite verse, He shall reign until His enemies are put under His feet. There are still enemies to be defeated. There are still mountains to climb, there are still valleys to patrol, and those valleys will sometimes have very real threats. But lo, no evil, I repeat for further emphasis, no evil is to be feared. Friends, I know the days are dark. No evil is to be feared. None. 
I don't care about the power of the World Economic Forum and their ability to shape policies and to, to further enslave Europe and, and America. I don't care about the, the, the pandemic Nazis who just want to control everybody. There's nothing to fear. Christ is before us, he is with us, he is in us, and he has promised to never forsake us. And the foundations of his throne, remember, righteousness and justice are of great comfort to us. The foundations of the throne in D.C. are sand. That's it. The foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. That rod of iron which strikes down the nation, that staff of guidance that makes us walk properly, it remains a source of respite and consolation. So look to it, friends. Christ has drank every. He's drank everything. He has drank even the dregs of God's wrath on our behalf. Every last drop. Remember in the garden about his struggle with the Father and praying to him about this cup, this cup of wrath that he is going to be drinking. And, and while some see that as Christ flaking out at the end, that's not the case. A very real man struggling with a very real thing. He drank every last drop. That glorious substitutionary atonement. And as a result of that drinking of even the dregs, Christ has established the kingdom and he has inherited the nations. It was Jesus himself who, as a faithful shepherd, set on a course to redeem his failing sheep. He became the great shepherd as a result. The Father prepared a table for Jesus in the presence of his enemies. And when the unruly, unwelcome guest of death came lurching out from the shadows through the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans at the time, Jesus, the host, brought us to his house, laid down his life for his guests. Christ has led the way through death. He has established us by his grace in the presence of sin and death. You have been established by grace in the presence of sin and death. And Christ was victorious over both which is why it's a wonderful passage to read at a funeral, to do the funeral of a believer who understood the gospel, to be able to say to his family and his friends or her, as it were, whatever the case, to say, we are here staring death in the face, but we're staring at an enemy that's been defeated. So what do we do at this table? We've been brought to the table. What are we supposed to do? Well, we feast... We feast at the table. There's food, there's wine, there's things to enjoy. We're there at the table with our king. Just imagine you, thought experiment here, just imagine you at this glorious table made of gold, we'll call it. You're there. You're with Christ. What do you do? Are you awkward? We're all awkward, I guess. Bad question. We're thankful to be there. We're thankful he's brought us to, to the table. We're very hungry because we're very needy. So we're, we want to eat, we want to drink, we want to fellowship with our king. But here's the situation. We feast at the table while the enemies of God stand raging and defeated at the door like the men of Sodom. Christ has anointed his people with oil, establishing them as a priesthood among the nations. You, if you are in Christ, friends, you have been established as a, pri as a priesthood among the nations. We are his royal priesthood. 
The cup that overflows. What is the cup on the table that's overflowing? That's eschatological abundance. In other words, it's not just victory. It's not, oh yeah, Jesus was victorious. No, it is triumphal victory. Parading in front of the enemies of God victory. Restorative victory. A guaranteed victory. The cup of the world cannot contain the immeasurable and overflowing victory of Christ kingdom the enemies of god will drown in the sea of his victory and it may seem like the enemies of god today are chasing after us it may seem like they're getting the upper hand all of these aberrant theories about man have seemingly inundated the conversation inundated the public square you got to be careful which pronouns you use you know that's a real crime mark my words if this train keeps going that direction they're going to they will penalize you for that. Perhaps financial restitution because you got your coffee at Starbucks and uh, you said him when he's a she, so now they're gonna slap a $50 fine on you. It seems just craziness, I get it, but the reality is goodness and loving kindness is what's really, really chasing us. And you have to believe it, church. And because of that fact, we can feast in the middle of the fight. We can feast in the middle of the fight. Christ has built the house. We are the occupants. The enemies cannot come in. They're outside beating on the door, but they are defeated enemies. We don't need to pay attention to them. Glory in Christ. He has defeated his enemies. Christ will defeat all of his enemies. What do we have to fear? Now, the problem of evil itself really isn't a problem for Christians. The biblical answer is very simple, and I obviously don't have time to go into it in detail. But the biblical answer, when someone says, ah, there's a, you know, you Christians, you have this problem with evil. No, 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 no. Our answer is, well, evil actually has a great problem. The pretended lordship of sin and evil and death has been unmasked thanks to the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. When Christ walked out of the grave and he started perhaps pulling weeds in the garden. Remember, Mary mistakenly thought he was the gardener. He was tending to the world. That's what Christ does, is tend to the world. Evil, in that moment, had been shown to be the sham that it always was. It was unmasked. It was defanged. It was shown to be utterly helpless. And this means that there is a place, please hear me, there is a place for calm assurance in the midst of a clear and present danger. There is a place for that. There is a place for you, and it may require you to turn off social media for a while. I don't know. There is a place of calm assurance for you in the midst of a clear and present danger. Christ is our green pastures. Christ is all of those things, and we can go to him and have that calm assurance, all because he was the one who was faithful to his flock. And he wasn't just faithful to his flock. He was faithful to each sheep individually, knowing your name, hearing his voice, responding to his grace. The Apostle Peter writes, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's 1 Peter 2.25. I read that and I thought, well, well, how have you returned? He said, Peter says, but, but now you have returned to the shepherd. How have you returned? Was it on your own? No. 
But how then? Well, it's Jesus Christ, friends. I, I have a question for you to ponder. And the question is this, who has established you? When you think about all the questions you could ask yourself, this is the question for sanctification. If you're, you're wrestling with sin, you've got strife in your marriage, relationships, you know, you got, you got these things going on, and you feel burdened, overwhelmed, you don't feel calm like you're next to the green pastures basking in the glorious 80-degree day, maybe 75. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. And the question you have to ask yourself is, who has established me? Who has established you? Are you established as a living, breathing, moving, thinking, emotional, and forgiven image bearer of God? Are you established? You are established. You are those things. But you know you didn't do it for yourself. Christ has done it for us. He's our shepherd king. He's the creator and he's the sustainer. And it's not only, not only has Christ established us by his grace, dying on a tree, forgiving our sins, he has given us the tools for the trade. Tools for the trade. Luscious pasture. Uh, clean waters. Like highly filtered, delicious to drink waters. No fluoride. Righteous paths. Tables with food and wine and anointing, right? The tab's always paid, which is great. You know, you think of the, uh, Isaiah said as much, and so did uh, John in, in Revelation about come, eat. Right? There's no cost. There's no fee to get in. Just come. Come who are all those who are weary. The tools. Those are all tools. Everything in this psalm are tools. Tools that Christ has given us. And they're ours to give to the world. They're ours to give as priest kings who advance the gospel in every area of life. And the work of the gospel is the deployment of these tools in a world so that nations can be forgiven, discipled, and sent out to do the same. That's the mission. That is the task of the church. And the same program that Christ went through and utilized to bring you to the table is the same program the church now must use. Call it, call it the spreading of tables in a culture of death program. Some have VBS. We have this spreading of tables in a culture of death program. That's what we do. And what should be our attitude? Let me finish with this. Paul says in Romans 8.31, I think it's a great place to start. What should be our attitude? The Apostle Paul said this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Creation, that's goodness, and covenant, loving kindness, are on your heels every single day. Do not neglect... <laughs> Do not neglect what our capable shepherd has given you. He has established you. Do not forget it. In Christ, there is no rushing around. There's no panic. There's no hurry. There's no disturbance that distracts us, uh, it, you know, distracts our attention from the generosity of our shepherd king who has laid this feast before our eyes. There, there's none of that. There's no confusing moments at Christ's table where we're not sure if we're allowed to have the special wine the good stuff. No, you've been brought in, friends. This is our home now. Christ has given us his home. The enemy may be at the door, pounding and demanding, but we're at his table enjoying all of his provisions. 
I wasn't, that wasn't me, that was. <laughs> Friends, there is safety and joy with our hospitable king. Do not forget what anchors you. Do not forget who anchors you, who supports you, who has established you. He is with you always. The gospel must be the foundation because it is the foundation. Psalm 1611. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm that David wrote 3,000 years ago. (laughs) It's a song that reminds us of your goodness and your kindness and your care for us. Not as a care that's just out there and metaphysical like this idea, but a real, true care for us in our day-to-day needs. And in fact, your son, Jesus, tells us that we don't, we don't really have to worry about anything that, that you, Father, care about every bird, every flower, every hummingbird that quickly runs in and runs away. You, you care about all those things, and if that's true, then obviously you care for us, and I thank you for that promise. Help us to know your word, Lord, to be comforted by that so that we can trust you in the days ahead. And whatever difficulty you have before us, we know that we have a table that we can attend to. A table where we can feast and enjoy your presence without the clamoring of, of, of the door, without the clamoring of those who rage against you. God, you have been good. May we be at peace in our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.